eight to 10 year olds are dismissed. But eight to 10 year olds, at some point, you need to read Ecclesiastes. All right? Okay. Turn to Ecclesiastes, if you will. If you open your Bible around the middle, or maybe three fifths of the way, you'll probably hit Psalms and then go to the right to books, past Proverbs, and then you'll find Ecclesiastes. Our text for the morning will be Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. I'll actually read that in a little bit. Uh, Before doing that, I want to kind of give you a little bit of background into this book, give you some reasons why I think it's appropriate now for our church. This uh, book uh, I've entitled, Life That Cannot Be Grasped, Life That Cannot Be Grasped, that speaks to a desire that all of us have to, to be satisfied with the things that we see, things that we want under the sun in this world, but we can't fully grasp that. We don't fully get satisfied with this life. And that's intentional on God's part, because if we could be satisfied entirely by things under the sun, then we wouldn't really need Him. And He's too wonderful not to need. The all-sufficient Creator, the sustainer of the world, the great benefactor of the world, the eternal Father who's loved the eternal Son, this God is too wonderful not to need. And the book of Ecclesiastes gives us a picture of trying to get life apart from Him, and it doesn't work. Full and final satisfaction cannot be attained from this world. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a warning for the next number of months as we go through this book. Joy isn't going to spring from the page, okay? This is not going to be a pep rally. Joy is faintly sprinkled into this book. It is there. And we know that this book is just one of 66 in a canon that God has authored, in a complete set that God has authored. And we know that as we see revelation unfold through time and as we have more revelation from God, we see that abundant life, a satisfied life, is found and is available because of what God has given us in His Son. So there is joy to be found past this book, but there is also joy sprinkled in through this book. And so we'll point that out, obviously, as we go through it. There's joy to be found in eating and drinking. There's joy to be found in marriage. There's joy to be found even in work. When we understand those things rightly, when we put them in their right place, Let me say it this way, we need to be disillusioned with the world. We need to see through it. We need to come to grips with the fact that there isn't always a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. We need that. We desperately need that. We need to let go of our quest for satisfaction from created things, created people, and find our satisfaction in the Creator who loves us. Think about marriage, if you will. Think of a newlywed couple and maybe they're writing a card to one another on their anniversary or maybe they're writing a card to one another just prior to uh, being married and the spouse or the soon-to-be spouse writes, you are my everything. Romantic, but dangerous. 
You don't want him or her to be your everything. They weren't created to be your everything, and they can't be your everything. So maybe the card should read, you are not my everything, but still really, really important. <laughs> Less romantic, but I'm a realist, but true. And I think we love our spouses best when we know the place our spouses are to be in our life, when we know that our ultimate satisfaction is from a loving Father through Jesus Christ the Son who has given us this wonderful gift to enjoy and to steward and to, to have experiences with. I think that's loving our spouses the best. But we need to be disillusioned with, with trying to place other things in a higher position than they are designed to be placed in. If we expect our spouses to be our ultimate satisfaction, or our jobs, or money, or whatever, if we expect them to be our ultimate satisfaction, we will grow bitter, angry, resentful, and frustrated constantly because they are not our everything. They can't be our everything. They are not all-sufficient like Christ is. But if we'll find our ultimate satisfaction in a present and future relationship with the Heavenly Father through Jesus' Son, then we can wonderfully enjoy the great gifts God has given us, like marriage, like money, like work, like food and drink. So, Solomon is not calling us to despise marriage. He actually calls us to love our spouses. He's not calling us to despise food and drink. Oh, it can't ultimately satisfy me. Big deal. I'm just going to eat dirt. That's not Solomon's goal. Solomon's goal is not to place all good gifts in the trash can. It's just to take them off of a throne that we put them off on. Take all those good gifts off of a throne, see God there on the throne, and then to enjoy the gifts that He's given us. We are in a place to enjoy God's gifts most when we don't need them to be what ultimately fulfills us. Now, a lot of Christians know this theologically, right? If I gave you a test, just kind of passed out a piece of paper and said, true or false, God is our ultimate satisfaction, you all would get an A. You know the answer in your head. But we do find ourselves putting a lot of stock into other people, right? And other things and other circumstances and situations. And it's good for us then to go through the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon will help us to become disillusioned with trying to be satisfied with things under the sun so that we would be satisfied in life with our Creator. Why do I want to teach this? Why do I want to teach this right now at this time to Canyon Bible Church of Prescott? Could it be a midlife crisis? I'm 45 years old. Maybe there's some sort of angst going on. Other people buy cars, new wardrobes. I preach Ecclesiastes. Maybe that's it. <laughs> that's not it. I don't think there's a crisis. I want to preach this to you. I want you to understand this book because even as Christians, we can start to put too much hope for satisfaction in work, play, and relationships under the sun. I stand kind of on a hill, as it were, and I look to one side of the hill and I see young people, so much of 
the ministry I've been a part of has been dealing with young people. I see desires of young people. I see kids bullied at school. I see kids with learning disabilities. I see kids not getting into their dream college. I see kids not getting their dream guy or girl. And you see disappointment. You see people, adults even, hurt kids. And you see that in your heart aches. You see 20s and 30s who struggle to have children, struggle to be married, end up working in a career field that they didn't want, not getting the career that they did want. You see disappointment in 20 and 30-year-olds. Then you see on the other side of the hill, you see people who are older, who have a heartache because of a wayward child or wayward children. You see people not being close to their adult children anymore. There were dreams of we'd all get together every Thanksgiving or Christmas and laugh around the table, and now they won't even come here. They won't even have the desire to spend time with us. There's heartache in this world. There's disappointment. There's hopes that we have that are continually dashed. Retirement will be the answer. We'll retire, we'll travel, and then the chronic illness comes, and we can't leave. We've got to be here. And instead of traveling to the Swiss Alps, we travel down to Phoenix to see the doctor regularly, and life disappoints. The plans that we had don't work out. This world will let us down. That is inevitable. My hope as your pastor is that it won't let us down because we're looking for it to ultimately satisfy us, so that we're going to be disappointed by things, but the disappointment is not as great when we don't place all our stock in those things. The disappointment doesn't need to be as difficult. Life's going to be hard anyway as a follower of Jesus, but if He's our ultimate treasure and satisfaction, I do believe the pains and the difficulties are halved, are diminished. And it is my goal as we look at the world and see this doesn't satisfy, that doesn't satisfy, they don't ultimately satisfy. It is my goal for us to come at every passage, every time we go through this book, to remind you of the hope that we do have in satisfaction with Christ. God is good. Listen. God the Father did not just say, I'm going to make a way of salvation. It's going to kind of be black and white. It's going to be a contract, and some people will be saved. I'll stamp that, and okay, they get salvation. No, no. He's not entering into a contract with humanity. He's a father looking for lost children whom he adopts and makes his own. Our God is a relational God. Our God is a God that we go to and He listens to us. Our God is a God who speaks to us. Our God is a God who makes promises to us, who only ever and always does us good. And that's who we want to find the satisfaction in. I've got some quotes for you that I think help kind of set the stage for the book of Ecclesiastes. I thought I'd share these with you because I think it kind of starts to get your mind around what we're going to find in the book. One writer said, the book of Ecclesiastes is one of God's gifts to help us live in the real world. Living in the real world. 
Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means to be alive in a world that God made and called good, yet which has also gone so very wrong, often in catastrophic ways. Derek Kidner says, Ecclesiastes is a rock that can, be, can destroy our view of life. So we've got these hopes and dreams, and all of a sudden the rock of Ecclesiastes comes in and shatters them all. But then Kidner says this, it's upon this rock that we then can build. I've thought of this illustration as I've been preparing for this book. I've thought we so often are looking to the horizon, looking around us for satisfaction. This relationship, this career, this financial situation, paying off all the debt. We, we look at all of this, and it doesn't always work out. And Ecclesiastes takes our head, and as we consider that it doesn't always work out, we kind of lower our head in despair. But the goal of Ecclesiastes isn't to leave our head down. The goal of Ecclesiastes is to pick our head up and not look at the world again, but to look higher and to trust in a God who does satisfy. So we start with our gaze outward. We're then told how to view everything in this world, and it causes us to put our head down. And it's as if God, through the pen of Solomon, lifts our head up, not to the horizon, not to the world around us, but higher to trust in our Creator. That's what Ecclesiastes does. Well, let's look at the first verse here, and then I'll give you our outline after we look at the author. Verse number one says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. There is some debate as to whether or not this is Solomon. Most believe this is Solomon. I believe this is Solomon. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The words of the preacher, literally, literally meaning the words of the gatherer. Solomon has gathered the assembly of God's people who are living in a rather prosperous time. You, you know this about Old Testament Israel. When, when David became king and then Solomon after him became king, Israel started to thrive. Financially, not always spiritually, but they looked around and they were pretty satisfied with what they had. The wine was flowing, the businesses were booming, and this was life under the reign of Solomon. And so Solomon gathers the people as maybe an older man. Some people believe this is Solomon's repentance for the ways he squandered so much of his life and sinned against God in a number of ways. Some people believe it's Solomon's repentance. Could be. But it is an older man, a king in Israel, gathering the people of God together and saying, do not find your satisfaction in all of this. I've tried it. I've been there. We need to consider our Creator. We need to think much of our Creator. This is the setting for it. E even the word preacher, the, the one who's gathering, is where we get the title Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes meaning the gathering, gathering together to hear about how unsatisfying the world can be. And ultimately, we know these aren't just Solomon's words, are they? They're God's words through Solomon. So God is gathering His people together, has been ever since this book was written, to remind them your satisfaction is not to be found in your career. Your satisfaction is not to be found in your marriage alone, 
in your children, in your labor. That's not where you can find lasting and true satisfaction. Those are all good gifts for you to enjoy, but they're not to be your ultimate goal. You know the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is full of so many truisms. If you do this, which is a characteristic of wise people, you'll be blessed. Just generally speaking, if you do this, you'll be blessed. Generally speaking, if you do this, you won't be blessed. So generally speaking, Proverbs holds out some reward for us as we live wisely. Ecclesiastes is the companion book that says, yeah, but it doesn't always work out. So Proverbs, do this and be blessed. Ecclesiastes says, yeah, but it doesn't always work that way. We need both books. We need both. So this book is key, important for us. At the end, flip over, if you will, to Ecclesiastes 12. Go to the last chapter. He calls himself a preacher again at the very end. And notice what he says in Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 11. Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 11. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. The book of Ecclesiastes is full of wisdom that pokes you. How many of you like to be poked by nails? Yeah, I didn't think so. But that's what Ecclesiastes does. Oh, yes, I got the dream job. I love it. Life's going to be great. Poke. I've got the dream girl. Got the dream financial package. Poke, poke, poke. That's what Ecclesiastes does. But you get, did you get that in verse 11? The words of the wise are like goads, like the nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. There's a reason your English translations have that capitalized, most of them. This is not just wisdom from Solomon. This is wisdom from our shepherd, God, the shepherd of Psalm 23, the shepherd of John 10. God, in his shepherding of us, is telling us not to be satisfied with this world. Let's go back to chapter 1. So most of that, all of that is introduction. I'm now going to walk through the first 11 verses pretty quickly compared to what we normally do. But I've entitled Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11, Are You Disillusioned Yet? Are you disillusioned yet? Let me read 1, 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full, to the place where the streams flow, where they, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. 
What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to, yet to be among those whom come after. Are you disillusioned yet? Here's the introduction to the book. Verses 1 through 11 are basically the, the overarching introduction of the book. This is where I'm going, says the preacher. All is vanity. So, for our outline this morning, in just a little bit, we're going to do this, an introduction to being disillusioned by this life. An introduction into being disillusioned by this life. We'll look at three things, three points. First, the motto for life, and that's vanity. Secondly, the desire for life, which is gain. We want gain, profit. And finally, the frustration of life, which is its repetition. So, as we look at an introduction to being disillusioned by this life, let's look first at the motto for life, which is vanity. He says this in verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He uses the word five times in one small verse. That's how he begins this. He introduces himself in verse 1 and then says, here's my motto. Here's my motto for life. Here's my motto for the book. All is vanity. We're going to read this phrase, vanity, all is vanity, things like that. It's expressed kind of in different ways, but but mainly getting that that hard about 28 times in this book. All is vanity. It's repeated over and over and over again. If if you want a word picture, if you want a picture of this this word, it's think of smoke. If I had a candle up here and I blew it out, you'd see some of the smoke, and then it goes away. So the smoke goes away quickly. The smoke can't be grasped. If I said, I'm going to grab this smoke and I'll show it to you in about an hour. I open my hand, it wouldn't be there. So, so, so it, this life goes quickly. It can't be grasped. It's elusive. And ultimately, if I wanted to hold on to this, I wanted this smoke. I couldn't have it, ultimately. I'd be dissatisfied. The word for vanity could be translated breath, wind, puff of smoke. Some of your Bibles might say meaningless. Vanity of vanities all is meaningless. I don't think that's a great translation. I'm not the the only one that thinks that. Because in this book, Solomon doesn't say all of life is meaningless. He says some things are better than others. He doesn't say both of them are meaningless. So he's not saying they're meaningless. I think there are a few aspects to this word vanity. So if you ask me, what, what does it mean when Solomon says all is vanity? I can't give you one word. I'll give you three. We can put those together and that's what we mean by vanity. Here's one. Life is short. All right? Life is short. Life happens and it goes quickly. Those of you who are parents of young children uh, in this church, you may have had people say things like, enjoy these years, they go by quickly. If I had a nickel for every time I heard that, and it's so true. I'm so thankful for that reminder because it's true. Enjoy these years, they go by quickly. They're born, 
They learn to walk, then they graduate high school, and they're gone. Wow, that happened quickly. That's true. That's what life is like. It it goes by quickly, and that's sometimes frustrating. That's just one aspect of this idea of vanity. The second is that it's elusive. We want things from it that we don't end up getting. Why does a loving father of three get a disease that kills him when the evil dictator lives to be 95 years old? Life's elusive. We want things to be a certain way from life, and they aren't. We want certain things to work out justly, righteously. We want the good rewarded, the bad punished, and it doesn't always work out that way. We can't have it that way. It's elusive. So, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Life is short, life is elusive, and life is disappointing. We expect something from the world that it doesn't produce. So, short, elusive, disappointing. You put those three words together, and I think that's the best way to understand this word vanity. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So, that's the motto of life for Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. The motto for life, it's vanity. It's short, it's elusive, it's disappointing. Now, secondly, we see a desire, the desire for life. What do we desire in this life? And the word that Solomon gives us in verse 3 is gain. We want gain. We want to profit from living in this world. Verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Listen, life is hard. We work for things. We, we work at relationships. We work for income. We work to eat. We've got a lot that we've got to do in this world. We'd like it to turn out for some sort of profit. What does man gain by all the toil? Or some of your translations might say, what advantage does a man have in all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Now, that word under the sun is going to be used a lot too in this book. Under the sun. All things in this earth, on this earth, that we see kind of at a horizontal level. Work, relationships, money, food, things like that. So, under the sun is a phrase given to things apart from God. Just consider this earth apart from God. All the pursuit of things under the sun, we want to bring us an advantage, some gain. But it doesn't. They don't. There's a famous illustration. I'm sure you've heard it before. When you see a hearst going down the road to a burial site, you don't see a U-Haul behind it bringing things with it. I'm going to take this with me in the next life. No, you're not. You came in with nothing. Guess what? You leave with nothing. This world, in and of itself will not leave you with things to take. We get nothing. Come in with nothing, leave with nothing. There's a desire that we have, though. We still desire something. We still desire to take things with us, people with us, situations with us, blessing with us. We want to take things with us. We want gain from this life. We want to 
live a meaningful life, and then take a lot of great things with us, but we don't get to do that. So we have a motto for life, vanity. We have a desire for life, gain. And then third and finally, in verses 4 to 11, we understand the frustration of life. What's the frustration of life? It's repetition. It's just the same over and over again. Nothing interrupts it to bring us final satisfaction apart from God. Maybe in this next election, everything will work out. Nope. The Reagan years were great, or the FDR years were great, or the Teddy Roosevelt years were great. They were great. And then we struggled again. And then we suffered again. So even in our highs on this earth, we're brought low again. The circle of life. Everything, therefore, stays the same. Nothing changes permanently for the better. Even new and exciting things become old. iPhone. iPhone. This is wonderful. Fifteen years later, people are ditching their iPhones. Give me the dumb phone again. We think something's going to improve everything dramatically, finally, and then it doesn't. Then we become dissatisfied with it. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. On and on it goes, one generation after another, and it continues going the way it's been. Nothing interrupts it to improve it. Verse 5, the sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on the circuits, the wind returns. So the sun comes up, goes down. Sun comes up, goes down. Sun comes up, goes down. The wind goes around and around and around. This is, this is what it feels like to Solomon. Nothing's changing. And as the sun comes up and down, as the wind goes around and around, life is hard. Life is difficult. Nobody comes and interrupts the whole cycle and brings final peace and satisfaction on this earth. Verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea's not full. Why is that? Because the water evaporates up, gets taken in clouds, comes, and then rains on the land, and the streams again flow to the sea. It's just a cycle. Nothing interrupts it. The sea's not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. Life is hard. Life is difficult. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. Again, this is all under the sun, all apart from God. There's something you think is going to satisfy you. Opening a business, getting married, getting that job. Let's check in on you a couple years down the road. That spring in your step isn't there anymore. It's hard. It's difficult. I've had to fire employees. The marriage is struggling. We couldn't pay off the debt like we thought and actually had to go into more debt because of medical bills. It's weary. It's weariness. It's difficult. Verse 9, what has been the difficulty of it all is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Verse 10, 
Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? Now, hold on a second, world. We've got something new here. iPhone, internet, printing press. Those things are great gifts. They've been a help to us. But they ultimately don't lead this world into ultimate satisfaction. And actually, they become, they can be used for harm. They can become things that bring about more disappointment. Some of you have heard of the studies that have come out from a number of different resources, schools, universities, places of health, of the increase in teenage depression since around 2008 because teenagers got a hold of these and the numbers have skyrocketed, skyrocketed. Teenage depression, suicide. Is there a correlation? Most people think so. So there are new and exciting things, but they are not things that ultimately satisfy. And actually, their flaws end up being revealed. The harm that they can cause end up being revealed. I mean, just consider the printing press. This is great. We're all going to have a bunch of information. And then you've got propaganda and lies spread in print. Social media. This is going to be great. I'm going to get to connect with people I went to high school with. Some of you are like, I don't want that at all. (laughs) Social media. We're going to get to hear what everyone thinks about everything. No, thank you. So even the things that are new we get excited about ultimately fail to satisfy and sometimes even start to cause harm. Charles Bridges writes this. This is so good. Look again at a man in all his pleasure, pursuits, and changes of life. His intellect may be gratified and his appetite for novelty supplied in the multiplied new openings of science. But no new springs of vital happiness are open to him. He is as far as ever from true rest. We get excited about so many things, but no new springs of real satisfaction open up to us in any of these things. Then verse 11. I mean, this has been a downer of an introduction so far. (laughs) Verse 11 is the worst part. There is no remembrance of former things. Most people think that that should be translated, no remembrance of former people. There's debate there. There's no remembrance of former things or people, nor will there be any remembrance of later things or people yet to be among those who come after. Things get forgotten. People are forgotten. Tell me the name of your great-great-great-great-grandmother. Most of you can't. And even if you could, you might know a handful of facts about her. But you don't know her facial expressions when she was annoyed or the things that she ate that she loved. You don't, you've forgotten her if you ever even knew her or remembered her or even if you know her name. Some people live for a legacy I want my name on a, uh, on a plaque outside of a building one day. 
they're going to name a building after me, and there's going to be a plaque on the ground as you kind of come in, and people are going to know me. No, they won't. They'll know your name. Some might read the plaque. Oh, he was a guy who did this or that in Flagstaff, or he did this or that in Colorado. But what's mostly going to happen is teenagers are going to skate over that plaque day in and day out. That's just what's going to happen. You see why it's good for us to come to grips with this? So that we can stop looking out here for satisfaction. And as we've got to verse 11 now, our heads have been brought down. This is a bummer. But so that God would lift our heads past the horizon again and look up and say, there must be something that satisfies my heart other than this. Father, teach me. Father, show me what true satisfaction is. Father, show me how important Christ is. I want to pray better. I want to know Him better as He speaks to me. I want to commune with God better because nothing else is my ultimate satisfaction. But the Bible says over and over again that He is my source of satisfaction. He is my perfect Father. Jesus Christ is my Savior who's a brother to me as I've been adopted into the family of God. There is something to find satisfaction in. But we've got to be disillusioned first with this world and our legacy and our money. We've got to come to grips with that. So as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, I'd encourage you in three main ways, okay? First, ask the Lord to reveal things or situations to you which, are placing, which you are placing too much hope in for satisfaction. Ask the Lord to reveal things that you're placing too much hope in for satisfaction. Are you unable to enjoy friendships because you want them to be the perfect friend to you? Are you unable to enjoy going to work because you're not fulfilled like you want to be in your career? Ask the Lord to reveal things that you're placing too much stock in. Secondly, ask the Lord to satisfy you with Himself. One of the prayers I've been praying to you, praying for you, not to you, that would be heresy. One of the prayers I've been praying for you over the last few weeks is that this book would somehow cause you to desire more and more and sweeter communion with God. Sweeter times of prayer, sweeter times of learning the Word, sweeter times even singing on a Sunday morning, hearing His Word taught. I want you to want to be closer to the one who does satisfy you. Third, be eager, Sunday in, Sunday out, be eager to be reminded of how this life will not satisfy. Lord, come and give me a right perspective about work. Lord, come and give me a right perspective about fellowship with others. Lord, come and give me a right perspective about food and drink. Lord, give me a right perspective about being disillusioned with this earth so I can be more satisfied in you. So again, three things for you. Ask the Lord to reveal things to you that you're placing too much stock in to satisfy you ultimately. Second, ask the Lord to satisfy you with himself. And third, be eager to be reminded Sunday in, Sunday out about how this life will not satisfy we need this book, friends. People all around us, you know this, are looking for satisfaction from the world. We are worshipers at heart. 
We're born looking to be happy and looking to think much of things that make us happy. We are born worshipers. The problem is we're born worshiping ourselves and other things that bring us satisfaction other than our Creator. So our worship is flawed. But you know this, the world is constantly looking for satisfaction all around us, and that can trickle into our lives as well. We can start to look for satisfaction in things and relationships around us. People all around, the world all around, looking for satisfaction in something that's going to come to us. Something will interrupt the cycle. You know that maybe the theme of the Disney Corporation, the theme song of Disney, When You Wish Upon a Star, this shows that the world is looking for something that it hasn't grasped yet. When you wish upon a star makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. No, it won't. It won't. I don't care how much you sing it, it won't happen. A number of years back, Jim Henson, creator of the Muppets, wanted a theme song like When You Wish Upon a Star that was for Disney, wanted one like it for the Muppets. And so the song Rainbow Connection was written. Some of you are hearing Kermit right now sitting on a log with a banjo. (laughs) I love the lyrics of this song because it's looking at Disney when you wish upon a star and saying, I don't think so. But then it still ends up believing that type of worldview. Well, maybe there is something. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? Rainbows are visions, but only illusions. And rainbows have nothing to hide. So we've been told, and some choose to believe it, I know they're wrong, wait and see. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. One day. And then the second verse. Who said that every wish would be heard and answered when wished on the morning star? Is that a jab at Disney? I think so. (laughs) Who said that we'd find our dreams when we wished upon the morning star? Somebody thought of that and someone believed it, and look what it's done so far. What's so amazing that keeps us stargazing? And what do we think we might see? So so far I'm like, okay, Muppets, you got it. You're not, you haven't bought into the lie. But then this line, someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. Still holding out for something that they won't find apart from a relationship with our Creator through the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, who forgives our sin, gives us His righteousness, and then God the Father adopts us because of the work of our older brother Jesus into His family, and that's where we find true satisfaction. It's not the end of a rainbow. It's at the end of a cross and an empty tomb when a father chose to adopt us through His Son. That's where satisfaction is found. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to ask a Christian in this room, tell me about the satisfaction you have because of God. Tell me about the hope that you have in God. Please ask someone about the satisfaction that they have. 
I want to end by reading you the lyrics to one other song. It's a song written by a man who looked at the earth. He was trying to follow God's ways, but it didn't always work out. The wicked prospered, and he, someone who wasn't wicked, was having a difficult time in life. And so Asaph wrote Psalm 73, and at the end, we see where his true satisfaction was found. He gets it at the end. He says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As I've been thinking about the book of Ecclesiastes and what I am praying for you, hoping for you, that word portion keeps popping into my head. I want you to see God as what you get. God is what you want. God is your portion. More than career, more than money, more even than family success. I pray that your heart increasingly wants God and you know that you can have him through the salvation that he offers in Jesus Christ. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I, desire, that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Father, please answer that prayer. I pray that at the end of this study, this church would be more satisfied in you, that we would find more joy in our souls because of what we're learning about you, more joy in our souls because of our reflections on the salvation that you've offered us. Give us greater insights into your love for us. Give us greater reminders of that. So, Father, use this book to disillusion with us with this world. Allow things that we've put a lot of stock in to be things that are not so impressive to us, but May we see you as glorious and good. Increase our sweetness of communion with you, Father. I pray for the prayer times for the people in this room to increase and to become all the more sweet. As they open your word and meditate on it, may that become sweeter to them. May the fellowship of Sunday mornings where we sing together about a relationship that we have that can't be taken away, may that be sweeter to us. Father, answer these prayers, please. And Father, I think one last prayer, which lines up with this book, is that when we see your gifts all around us, we don't want them to be our everything, but we want to steward them and love them better than we have before. We want to see our husbands and wives and love them better than we could before because we understand them rightly, gifts from you, our resources, our finances, our food and drink. We want to be thankful and enjoy it not have a love-hate relationship with these things, but enjoy them because they come from your hand, the one who ultimately satisfies us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.